You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network. And yes, it is Monday, July 9th. We are back in full swing for this week after our great vacation last week. Although we did slip in on Friday, very important podcast. If you haven't heard it yet, episode 247 with a victim of illegal immigration, Eileen Smith. Um, heartrending story, but very worthwhile to hear it in case you missed that podcast. You know, today we are all waiting with bated breath to see who President Trump will appoint tonight. And I'll have my comments on that after that becomes known, and I'll probably have an article out, and maybe maybe we'll do another podcast, maybe in-house with our le- resident legal scholar, Joe Koss. But for now, especially for those of you who are new to this show, and I know we have a lot of new listeners, I, I think today's show will give you a sense of, of what we typically do here. We'll typically take what everyone's talking about and – demonstrate how everyone's fighting the wrong fight. Now, there's something much broader and deeper to it. And I want to focus around the thesis of what would our founders think of today's Supreme Court fight? What would they think about the fact that you know two sides are ripping each other apart over a potential nominee to a Supreme Court? And I want to frame this discussion <clears throat> by starting off with President Trump's tweet. And by the way, I apologize. I'm still very sniffly today, um, albeit my voice is definitely stronger than last week. So hopefully by tomorrow we'll be in, in you know, <laughs> full swing. But Trump tweeted out this morning, I have long heard that the most important decision a U.S. president can make is the selection of a Supreme Court justice. Will be announced tonight at 9 p.m. <sighs> you know, I, I, I don't blame Trump for Echoing that sentiment because, you know, he's just reflecting what everyone else is saying, and it becomes a self-fulfilling reality. But what I wrote about today at Conservative Review, the most important precedent, there's only one precedent that matters. And that's the precedent that made the court what it is today, and that shouldn't be true. This notion of judicial supremacy is a legal fiction. I know we dealt with it a little bit before we went away on vacation, but I want to reiterate some of those principles. I got a lot of questions about this through email, and I want to reiterate some of these points. The origins of judicial supremacy, the difference between judicial supremacy and judicial review, how judicial review fits in with co-equal branches of government, what our founders intended in terms of the most important question, who gets to interpret the Constitution, who decides? And where does Marbury versus Madison fit in on this and all the myths that have been created about it? But the reality is, you know, everyone asks me, Daniel, what do you think of the nominees? And look, you know, a lot of you won't, won't wind up hearing this until after the pick is made. But yeah, I mean, my, my first choice was Mike Lee um, among the ones that were picked 
that were uh, bantied about afterwards, I, I guess I'd say it's Amy Barrett. And then the other ones I really don't have much confidence in. Um, not that not that I think they're going to be suitor. It's just that when we're in, in this degree of judicial hell, judicial Sodom and Gomorrah, and you have the majority, a tenuous one, but you have a majority, um, you have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to flip Kennedy's seat, why not pick someone on par with a Clarence Thomas? Why settle for less? And the reason why I say that, you might say, well, you know, when you're picking a um, political nominee, whether it's an executive branch appointment, whether it's someone running for House or Senate or state legislature, you know, you, you, you have to settle sometimes. You can't go for, for perfection. But no, the reason why you, you, ha- you can't settle here is because unlike any other position – we say, you know, if they vote to pass the law, it's not the final say. But with the Supreme Court, we say that's everything. That they have the sole, final, exclusive, and universally binding role of the law of the land of the Constitution. So then, yeah, I mean, you can't miss. But the broader point I wrote about today is that, you know, it's funny. The Democrats are, are suddenly discovering, like, you know, maybe we could add justices. It's not written anywhere there's nine justices. You know, who says they have this power? I'm like— Amen. I'm glad the left finally recognizes this. And I think rather than fight with the left, we should use it to strike a grand bargain. I want to talk about that grand bargain, how to get the court back to the intent of the founders. Ironically, the Democrats are wrongly concerned that we're headed for some sort of era of you know right-wing policies from the Supreme Court, from, from the lower courts. And as you all know from two of my most recent articles, one on the Supreme Court allowing lower courts to abolish public prayer, and the other one on on 50 million ways the lower courts are attacking uh, our sovereignty on immigration even after the victory in the Supreme Court on the travel ban in Hawaii v. Trump, you'll note that because Roberts is worse than anyone understands he is – He's really bad. He's getting worse. And the lower courts are worse than ever, especially with this nationwide injunction, forum shopping, ACLU business. I don't think much is going to change anyway. So the fact that the left perceives it as changing, but it's really not going to change, is a perfect example, perfect opportunity for us to strike a grand bargain. All right, Democrats, you're scared of right-wing judicial supremacy. How about let's agree to finally end judicial supremacy – and judicial judicial exclusivity and universality, and I'm going to explain what all that, that means, and go back to what they originally intended, that all three branches in the inevitable intersection of, their, of the use of their powers with constitutional interpretation have a responsibility, the power, the right, and, and downright the obligation to interpret the constitution as they see rightfully fit. And incidentally, the court has the fewest tools – to affect that, not the greatest tools. So if you're worried about you know, some opinions on expanding Citizens United or Janus, look, you want to use the states and the other two branches to fight back against that? Fine. But just know that we then have the opportunity to do the same with abortion, marriage, religious liberty, public prayer, immigration, and, and, and election law and many other things. And that's fine. I agree with Janice because the court got the Constitution right, 
not because the court said it, because the Constitution is very clear that you can't force someone to cough up their own money to a private entity, especially when it violates their conscience. That's the ultimate negative unalienable right. But if you disagree with the way the court interprets the Constitution, I believe you're wrong, and I'm going to fight you tooth and nail on it, but you have the right to say the court's wrong. This gets back to Lincoln and Douglas and Dred Scott. But anyway, in order to understand the proper role of the courts and why the courts have transmogrified into this beast that everything depends on it. So everyone's like, okay, are they going to overturn this president? Are they going to overturn Roe? Are they going to overturn Obergefell? Are they going to overturn Miranda? Really, there's one precedent that matters. And, it, and it's broadly encapsulated in several decades worth of the Warren era in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s of radical leftist opinions. But it, it really started with Cooper v. Aaron. Cooper v. Aaron. That was a 1958 case. A lot of people think that it, it, it was John, you know, John Marshall in 1803 in Marbury versus Madison that declared judicial supremacy. And I'm going to get to in a minute why that's not the case. As we noted many times, in fact, his opinion is if, if you read it properly, not what his intent might have been, but what he actually said. It actually proves the exact opposite, and there's a number of ironies in the case, in the broader case, that prove the exact opposite of judicial supremacy. And the rationale for also even allowing the weaker court onto the playing field in their very limited access – sorry for the cracking voice – their access to addressing constitutional ter- interpretation, that proves how much more so – the executive and legislative branches in their more robust powers over the purse, over legislation, over enforcement, and effectuating the outcome of court decisions or anything else, how much more so they must only use their powers in concert with their oath of office, the Constitution, the way they understand the Constitution. It was Cooper v. Aaron that made the courts you know supreme to the other branch and it did it did two things um and just first i just want to before i forget set the backdrop how ironic this is how ironic the situation we're living in now the supreme court pick is going to consume the entirety of the summer up up until the september hearings at the confirmation hearing at the senate judiciary committee and by the way, one good thing about that, thank God for Anthony Kennedy. I mean, you know, maybe this will get him out of hell. Just kidding. <laughs> but uh, it's going to um, knock jailbreak off the, off the agenda. So that crazy jailbreak bill that passed the House that would retroactively early release a number of very hardened federal prisoners and endanger our society and pave the road for, for even worse bills – that would have to go through Senate Judiciary Committee, so that's done. That's done this year. Thank God. But anyway, I, I expressed a concern before I went away on vacation that, you know, as important as the Supreme Court pick is, there's something even more important, and that's the upcoming budget bill. And the upcoming budget bill, both Congress's power of the purse and the president's power to veto. 
two powers that I would argue are much more important than a Supreme Court pick and any power that that justice has. That's what's this, what is so ironic about this, that that's going to be overshadowed, and the goodwill Trump will get out of picking another Supreme Court ju- justice will allow him to violate his promise of never again to never sign another bad budget bill and ensure that the spending bonanza continues and that his entire immigration agenda gets shredded and the lower courts continue doing their craziness. Supreme, uh, <coughs> sanctuary cities continue to rule supreme. And this invasion from Latin America continues. This MS-13 fentanyl invasion continues. And the wall is not, obviously not built. We're forgetting about that. What Congress can do in the budget bill and what the president can leverage with his veto is much more powerful than the courts. I mean, we seem to forget this. It's so ironic that, that this should really be the fight. And, you know, I laid out a strategy last month, a two-step strategy of how Trump could use rallies and, and RNC funding to run ads against these red state Democrats to first have a security budget sever direct the Senate and House leadership, the Republican leaders, to sever out defense and homeland funding separately and make it all about immigration and security. And then once you beat them on that, then you could have a general spending fight on non-defense discretionary spending, not hijacked by this whole business. Oh, I'm worried, worried about the military. Uh, but but no, nobody's making that play, and certainly now no, nobody's going to focus on that. But that's really everything because this gets back to my Friday column that ironically, if Trump doesn't use the budget bill and l- harness his veto leverage to do so and harness his bully pulpit to do so, guess what? The Supreme Court justice won't matter, even if they're good on immigration. The lower courts are hitting us with like a thousand things, and one or two make it to the Supreme Court. We literally have an invasion into this country where they now, now they're going to say that Trump can't even ask for citizenship status in the census. So we don't have our, our reapportionment attenuated and distorted by foreign nationals illegally invading our country, lower courts are, say, are, are hinting that they're going to rule that way. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. But amazingly, everything all hinges on the Supreme Court. Now, they're kind of right. Because of what we've accepted since Cooper v. Aaron in 1958, and, you know, in, just blown up in every subsequent decision in the Warren era and, and, and since then, they are kind of right. I mean, once you agree to this false legal fiction that's undemocratic, it's unrepublican, it's it's anti-constitutional, it's horrible, then yeah. I mean, if you're going to tell me that whatever a court says, not just the Supreme Court, but now the lower courts, in an in individual case or controversy, two things were said in Cooper v. Aaron. Number one is that it's, quote, this is what the um, per curiam decision said, all, all nine justices. The, the basic principle that the federal judiciary is supreme in the exposition of the law of the Constitution, it, they declared it as, quote, a permanent and in, indispensable feature of our constitutional system. 
And what I'm going to get to in a minute, that, that is not they, – they cite Marbury versus Madison, but that is not what, what was said there. That they are supreme in the exposition of the law. No, they're supreme in the sense that they could overturn and take an appeal from a lower court, an inferior court as the Constitution calls them. They're not superior over the other branches, and they're certainly not superior over the other branches in the exposition of the law of the Constitution. But that's what they declared. They declared themselves supreme. Whereas Madison said that no branch of government <coughs> can pretend to be exclusive or superior um, in settling the boundaries between their respective powers. Here, they courts went ahead and did it. And and you know, more importantly than the courts doing it, you know, the courts could do whatever they want. They don't have power to enforce it. It's that the other branches and the entire political culture accepted that. That's the problem. But basically, this case dealt with desegregation in the schools in Arkansas, and that's a whole other problem that all of the cases, both transmogrifying the power of the court itself and also bastardizing the 14th Amendment and other sections of the Constitution in terms of constitutional interpretation, were intricately, insidiously, and very artfully <laughs> intertwined into civil rights. So that, that was the, the ruse here, you know. Well, you know, what are you going to say? Do you, do you support segregation? Uh-huh. And really, it's not a matter of segregation. It's a matter of what the courts did to achieve certain results. And so obviously, Brown v. Board of Education was four years earlier. But, you know, people forget what, what, what the decision was. People forget what a court is. So there's, there's two things that, um, that the courts did. And, you know, I, I just want to try to bring this up here to have some of the cases in, in front of me as I'm talking. They, they created a, a, a supreme law of the land clause of the Constitution that never existed, and they created a, a universi universality clause that it's universally binding. What the courts were until the Warren era was very simple. There's, there's two things. Yes, on some limited basis, they engaged in judicial review um, and said, oh, I don't like these statutes, these laws of states or Congress are – we believe they're unconstitutional. But A, they only did them when they were manifestly repugnant to the Constitution as written. And it was only in a limited case of a true individual right that legitimately had standing before the court. But then even then, there were two things about that. Number one, it was only binding on the parties before them. A court doesn't create law. It, it, it issues an order to those parties. But anyone else, and you might say, well, similar cases is kind of almost automatic. Well, yeah, but this is where the second part comes in, that the courts aren't supreme, meaning it's just that you bring the case in front of them if they're adequately and properly exercising their authority to adjudicate cases and controversies, and in the process of doing that, they have to peek behind the statute because, look, this guy has an individual right. You know, He's having his money stolen and given to the Democrat Party, like in the case of the Janus Union case. Um, look, I, I can't say I understand that's the law of the Cal California, but you know, I have to issue this guy relief. But you know, could other states and you know try to push back and you know create Similar laws that are slightly different to get around it, try to overrule it, um, emphatically say we don't agree with this, 
And certainly the other two branches of the federal, federal government could use their powers, the person enforcement to say, this, this is ridiculous. We don't agree with it. Sure. Sure. Um, that, that's what they could say. So in Brown v. Board of Education, obviously, as you well know, you know, of course, um, we don't support segregation here, but the, the reality is that what, you know, they just bastardized the 14th Amendment, you know, something that it just wasn't. They turned it from, you know, something that was just rooted in the Bill of uh, Bill of Rights and really in the Declaration of Independence, um, negative, unalienable rights, locomotion, and they made it into this document of legal positivism that could, you know, ever increase uh, over time with any, any political right that you want to create. And... Um, you know, but but putting that aside, people forget what actually happened. What actually happened in this court case? What does a court do? A court doesn't strike down laws. It didn't strike down, you know, um, segregation across the board in every circumstance. It didn't actually do that. Because no court did that before. They, they rule on individual parties. In this case, there were, I, I, I believe, four states that were a party to this, <laughs> um, give or take. I've, I haven't looked at, at the case in a while. But they wrote, here's the end. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we hold that the plaintiffs and others similarly situated for whom the actions have been brought here are, by reason of segregation complained of, deprived of their equal protection of laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. Now, notice what they say. We, we hold that they're being deprived. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? So they say, because these this is the very end, you know, the part that's the actual order. Everything else is BS. That's their opinion. Um. Because these are class actions, because of the wide applicability of this decision, and because of the great variety of local conditions, the formulation of decrees in these cases presents problems of considerable complexity. Now, you might think they would, the court would say, like, because this is so appalling and immoral and violates the 14th Amendment in their view, we declare we, – we are striking down all segregation and all schools everywhere must immediately be – fully integrated under all circumstances. No, notice they say, well, it presents considerable complexity. On re-argument, the consideration of appropriate relief was necessarily subordinated to the primary question of the constitutionality of segregation in public education. We have now announced that such segregation is a denial of the equal protection of law. In order that we may have the full assistance of the parties in formulating decrees, the cases will be restored to the docket, and the parties are requested to present further argument on questions four and five previously uh, <clears throat> propounded by the court for the re-argument this term. The Attorney General of the United States is again invited to participate. The AG of the states requiring or permitting segregation in public education will also be permitted to appear as a Mikai Curie upon request to do so by September 15, 1954, and submission of briefs by October 1, 1954. It is so ordered. Okay? <laughs> Notice how technical that, that order was. That's what courts do. And that's exclusively what they're supposed to do. They, they, they don't technically strike anything down. It's only binding on those um, 
those uh, parties and only, you know, usually will be remanding it back to the lower court that they should examine the case, not in a way that's inconsistent with the ruling that they just handed down. And then, you know, if they don't like it, they could, you know, appeal again and the court will see whether they um, agree with what the lower courts did. But so what happens? So do, do you rip out the policy or statute? And again, th- think of think of other cases like gay marriage. Don't think of segregation because none of us support segregation as a matter of policy. But okay, so marriage is ripped up, ripped to shreds. Uh, you know, defining marriage between a man and a woman, it's ripped out of statute. No, the courts never do that. It's not, it's not what happens. <clears throat> you know, or, or you know, certainly before the Warren era, it was very technical. In Cooper v. Aaron, what the courts did. So in the meantime, Arkansas, which wasn't even a party, was one of the states that was a party to Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and 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 by the way, I'm gonna link to. Where is this? I don't have it yet. Maybe I'll see later. But in in Cooper v. Aaron, so they were addressing Arkansas, that that basically what they did is they. They amended the state constitution, and then they they employed all these um, back ended ways of solving solving the problem from their you know ideological perspective at the time, desiring segregation, <clears throat> to basically find ways to allow whites not to attend certain schools, and just backhandedly make it that it doesn't work out to try to really gum up the works, and you know as a matter of of the Constitution, they have the right to do that. Now, if it implicates a real constitutional right and someone wants to bring a lawsuit, a new lawsuit on that specific thing, <clears throat> you could do that. And, and and you have to scrutinize that, you know, whether they have that power or not. But you always have the recourse to fight back. And they did. But in Cooper v. Aaron, the court basically said, no, Brown v. Board of Education is, is universally binding, self-executing as president automatically. And that's really where, you know, they and then they then they said it's the law of the land, and no one could ever challenge it. So, um, and, and they said that states couldn't quote indirectly undermine the outcome of precedent in the case quote through evasive schemes. What do you mean? I we can't undermine? You're not a legislature. You you can't do that. But but that that is where this came from. You know, and then and then the same opinion is the court said the interpretation of the Fourteenth Amendment enunciated by this court in the Brown case is the supreme law of the land, meaning not the ruling. Oh, in this case, submit more briefs, go back, remand to the Eighth Circuit, yada yada. No, it was that. Now, now this is really where they changed things. Four years later, the the abstract ruling on the constitutional question. Broadly speaking, beyond the parties is the supreme law of the land. So there, it's a black magic that they're employing of two things. Number one, they're making it universally binding and self-executing on everyone. And number two, they're saying no one else could challenge it. Certainly not the states, but even the other two branches of the federal, federal government. And that's crap. You know, as I write in my piece, um, Ed Meese at the time was attorney general in his famous bicentennial lecture on the Constitution <coughs> – Sorry about that. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> barely breathe here. Got to get a cup of water. I'm telling you this cold is terrible. So, 
he lambasted the opinion. And he said it would have shocked men like Marshall and Joseph Story, <clears throat> who themselves had a very strong regard for the role of the judiciary. And he said it was no different than taking Stephen Douglas's side over Dred Scott of this law of the land business. Um, quote, it's at war with the Constitution, at war with the basic principle of democratic government, and at war with the very meaning of the rule of law. Because if, if a court could be the final decider and have it universally binding, so that means that we have this backstop veto and super legislature, and, and it's unelected, and there's nothing you can do. It's all in the hands of one – we don't have three branches of government. It makes no sense. And obviously, as time went on, you know, this was the first time they did it to states. This was states. But, you know, they went on um, – in Baker v. Carr, they declared themselves the arbiters, final arbiters of redistricting um, and, and said that even something like redistricting, which is not an individual grievance. If I don't like my districts, like, you know, that's not an individual right. That's a p- fundamentally political issue. It's not justiciable. But, you know, they, they said it was um, – over a very sharp descent of Justice Harlan and um, Justice uh, Felixer, uh, uh, Felix Frankfurter. Um, a few years later, I believe this was 1969, in Powell v. McCormick, that's when Warren declared the court the ultimate interpreter of the Constitution. They got involved in – there was a case where they wanted to expel a member of the House because they felt he didn't qualify. Um, and you know the court was getting involved in, in the internal affairs of another branch of government. So, you know, the rest is history. History. There's a terrible Dickerson opinion from Rehnquist, of all people, in 2000, um, also really encroaching on congressional power, uh, basically saying that Congress can't do anything to overturn Miranda, which in itself is is an awful, awful legal fiction, especially the, this whole exclusionary <coughs> rule, which, by the way, um, Ed Meese said is the single worst opinion that needed to be overturned at the time, and, and now there's nobody um, on that side, even with Ed Meese still alive, who's even pushing for that. I'd love to know where the prospective uh, Supreme Court nominee stands on that. Uh, clearly, Thomas and, and Scalia didn't like that, and they, they had a vigorous dissent there. Uh, Scalia wrote it. And basically, in recent years, we just said the courts assume control over immigration, sovereignty, even the parts that Warren didn't want to cover. And then now it's even the lower courts, and it's universally binding, and it's even outside of the plaintiffs, and it's even outside of their districts. So any one form shopped court of all the sixty of uh, all the ninety four or so uh, federal district courts could just be the final word, unless it's overturned by the Supreme Court. But that's certainly the final word, folks. I mean. If we're going to accept this, then nothing else matters. Nothing matters that we do politically, and nothing matters even with regards to Supreme Court picks. Nothing matters. Why did – why did – what's his name? Why did Ed Meese say that John Marshall wouldn't recognize this? Isn't this what he said? It's emphatically the province of – the judiciary to determine what the law is. Well, here's the thing about Marbury versus Madison. It's very important to bookmark this podcast if you know just if you want to hear the truth about Marbury. And there's a lot to say on it. And you know, in all candor, I didn't fully prepare to talk about this. You know, it, it deserves its own show in and of itself. But Marbury proves the opposite. Um, Marbury – John Marshall and Marbury never said at any point 
that the courts are supreme and final, supreme court or certainly inferior courts to the other branches of government. It was just also in the course of a legitimate case or controversy of a plaintiff for to issue judgment to that plaintiff, they have the responsibility because, you know, he wasn't expressing judicial supremacy. He was expressing constitutional supremacy. So, you know, if, if the legislature passes a law we believe is unconstitutional, I have to render the judgment the way I see the Constitution. But the very rationale of judicial review is a refutation to judicial supremacy because how much more so if the court issues a bad opinion and says, you know, you must issue a gay marriage license and we're going to lock up anyone who doesn't do it or you, or you must bake the damn cake or otherwise we're going to arrest you. How much more so the executive branch has an obligation not to send out the marshals in contravention to, um, you know, to, 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 to what was going on. I mean, his point was because, you know, barring Marbury, and again, it wasn't really Marbury. It was understood by pretty much all the Federalists, certainly Hamilton 15 years later in Federalist 78, um, James Wilson in his lectures. Really, I mean, all of them, Ellsworth, Roger Sherman, um, certainly um, uh, Morris. They, they all believed in... in um, in in judicial review, but no one ever f- figured that a it would be universally binding on everyone, and how you'd be able to have cases and controversies on abstract philosophical policies that affect the entire nation and have them binded on everyone and be the final say on it, unless you get five other judges to overturn that. I mean, it it just was never the case. In order to understand the absurdity of using Marbury for judicial supremacy. I want you guys to understand a little bit of background on Marbury. I know a lot of you who who have formal legal training or or are into history, this might not be new to you, but a lot of lot to a lot of you I'm sure this is new and it's very important to to understand this. The ironies of the, of the entire politics and the case and the legal rationale and what he said and what he ruled on didn't rule on proves the exact opposite the exact opposite of what they're saying you know even a lot of my friends that hate judicial supremacy they attack marbury and and look i'm no fan of marshall for a number of reasons and he might have had other you know (laughs) ulterior motives here but if you look at what he actually said there's nothing wrong with it and actually is a good opinion with a couple of problems in it um, but but I'm talking about the the main point he made about the oath of office um, and about constitutional supremacy. So basically, everyone knows the 1800 election was almost like a new revolution in this country. Very acrimonious between John Adams and Jefferson, who are friends, then became the worst of enemies, and then later united in their old age and and died on both on July 4th. Um, where we're transitioning to from the Federalists to the <clears throat> the Democrats under Jefferson, very different philosophy. First changing of the guards in terms of political power. And to begin with, the election was very tough because so, you know, it was all, a whole drawn out process. They didn't start in January. Back then the inauguration was was until March. So it would have been March um eighteen oh one. And basically 
in this case, no one had a majority of the Electoral College, so it was very messy. It dragged out that the House of Representatives had to pick the nominee, all the while John Adams, of who's a Federalist, um, is still president. Now, basically, Adams... So, so well, actually, before we get to the, you know, expanded... Um, <clears throat> courts and 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 uh courts uh courts of uh lower courts and <coughs> the other positions they expanded that led to the actual marbury case but just one more background information here the biggest irony is that over this time over this time actually the chief justice resigned so you know picture you know right now we're having this argument democrats are like what the heck you know you can't have in a midterm election year you can't pick a new supreme court justice it's kind of funny you know there, there's some sort of rule unwritten rule that you can't do that well picture losing an election and during the the extended really the extended um lame duck period. Now we just have a lame duck session in December, but they had it going until March of the next year, picking a new chief justice. So Oliver Ellsworth, who is regarded as the godfather of the of Article 3 of the of the judiciary created under the Constitution, one of the most important of the framers at least with regards to the judiciary, he was the chief justice. He was in Paris at the time and he resigned. Um because he was he was just he was ill. And um, Adams wanted to make sure he got his guy in before Jefferson ever had a chance to take office. So he appointed um, John Marshall, and you know he was just shepherded through because back then it really wasn't a big deal. Uh, I believe there wasn't even – you didn't even have Senate Judiciary Confirmation hearings. You, you didn't really have a committee process back then with, with this stuff. I'm not sure if this is the case with all of them. I know it's for sure true here. It just wasn't a big deal. It just wasn't a big deal. And and he was confirmed. It might have been unanimous, um, but it, it was very quickly. He was confirmed. Um, and by the way, another important irony, several, several important ironies here just to know a background. I, I quoted this a lot in previous podcasts. It's in my book. Um, I think I have it in, in one of my columns from two weeks ago. It was in this case, the backdrop of Marshall getting on the court for Marbury versus Madison, that the first pick of John Adams wasn't even Marshall, was John Jay. And ironically, John Jay declined the appointment. Imagine this. You're, you're about to make what everyone believes is an earth-shattering decision that's going to create judicial supremacy for all of time. And John Jay missed out on it because he was like, the court sucks. You know, it's 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 a boring place. John Jay was a politician. He was a secretary of state, um, served in other political capacities. He he wanted to affect policy. He was like, you know, this is boring as hell. I don't want to be on the court. So he's like, no. I mean, because John Jay was previously on the court under Washington, and now Adams wanted him to return as the chief. And he was like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing this. Um, what a dumb place to be. Um. And, uh, and and by the way, 
so, so that that's just a, an irony, just to, to think about. And, and and by the way, another irony is the the retiring Chief Justice Oliver Ellsworth. He once said he promised during the ratification of the Constitution that the judiciary was quote not to intermeddle with your internal policy. Again, he was a very strong, you know, advocate of the judiciary, but he said it would never get involved in internal policy. You know, well, when does life begin? What's a marriage? Election law. Immigration. They would never. They never thought to do this. None. None of them. Even the people that had the strongest view, like Wilson and Hamilton and Marshall and and Morris, the strongest view of the court. Um. They. They never understood that it would get involved in internal affairs. It just wouldn't. That. That. That wasn't even. <laughs> they. They would have laughed that off. Just the the notion that that was even true. And also, you know, if you want to talk about Ellsworth, um, you know, again, no greater authority for the original intent of the power of Congress or the judiciary. He wrote in a 1796 opinion, right, because he was he was chief justice then, that if Congress had provided no rule to regulate our proceedings, we cannot exercise an appellate jurisdiction, and if the rule is provided, we cannot depart from it. That Congress controls all their proceedings. The only thing Congress can't do is rule on in, – in, this is a Supreme Court case that, that was recently quoted from. I forget which one it is. In, in Smith v. Jones, Jones wins. That's the only thing Congress can't do. Otherwise, they can control every other aspect of the courts period nothing to talk about so again these are the people we're dealing with just so you know these are the people we're dealing with this is their view of the role of the courts we cannot depart from it. i mean it's just just unbelievable if you think about it so um so anyway that's what that I'm trying. I'm just trying to see here. I'm sorry. I'm just flipping through some notes here to try to get you um, the citation for that in case you guys want to want to use it in any of your debates or talks or writings yourself. I know we have you know plenty of of other writer political writers here. Listen, it's Wiscart v. Dachi, three U.S. three Dell three twenty one. Where was it? Seventeen ninety six. Yeah, Wiscart v. Dachi. D a u c h y. Um, that was the case, um, quoting quoting Ellsworth. But anyway, I've gone long here, uh, just just to get to the case. So anyway, um, Marshall was appointed as chief justice. Really ticked off Jefferson, obviously doing that. Um, and then what happened? So Marshall was ironically he was Secretary of State at the same time. He was currently the Secretary of State for John Adams. So he was serving in two capacities. He was Secretary of State and Chief Justice for that that lame duck session before Jefferson came in and kicked him out of the Secretary of State office. He was actually doing both. And um you know and and, and they 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 just hated each other. Um Marshall and uh and um, what's his name? Jefferson. Whereas Jefferson and Adams made up at the end of their life. Uh, I don't think he ever made up with Marshall. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. I mean, he he took office, and then here's where the Marbury case comes in. So, um, they did a number of things. The Federalist last minute in that lame duck session. I mean, imagine this happening today, January, February 
um, they passed the 1801 Judiciary Act. And, you know, obviously you had the big 1789 Judiciary Act, which created the judiciary. This was the, the, the next real big act on the judiciary. It did a number of things. So first of all, again, another irony. Even the Federalists, even the people that were would eventually write or advocate for Marbury um, and judicial review, part of this act, it actually reduced the number of justices on the Supreme Court from six to five. Okay, so there's that. Um, it created just – it restructured the courts of appeals. It created new judgeships, and um, it eliminated circuit riding, which the justices hated. The Supreme Court uh, justices had to ride circuit. They had to rule on, you know, on, on the circuits, and so it got rid of it for that period of time. And then the operative thing for our case to, to, to set up Marbury is that it created new justices of the peace, right? New new position, and that was all dispensed um, through the State Department back then. All these positions. So basically, they they got their papers, their nomination papers. They got their um, uh, what do you call them? Their appointments from the State Department. Well, guess who was running the State Department during the lame duck session? John Marshall. Um, so you know, th- th- this is where you know you read a- read about in uh, you know American history one hundred and one. What's called the midnight judges. Um, they're really justices of the peace that. Adams was just trying to get them in before, you know, in the waning days and hours before Jefferson would take over. And so he would, Marshall was writing all the commissions. Here you go, here you go, go out. And now you got your job, you got your job. Um, there were several commissions. I guess they just didn't have the time to, to deliver logistically, whatever. One of them was this guy, William Marbury, um, to serve as one of the justices of peace. So, um, Ironically, you know, at that moment, it's Marshall himself, who's the sitting Secretary of State, sitting Chief Justice, and the guy administering the oath of office to Jefferson as the new president, and they hated each other's guts. Um, which is really funny. It, it just the, the politics back then were much cooler than now, despite despite what you think about politics today. So anyway. Um, He's sworn in, and you know, obviously Jefferson kicks him out. You suck. I don't want you. Um, and he appoints his best ally, um, uh, James Madison, as Secretary of State. He comes in there, and he's like, "Screw this! I mean, we suffered enough damage from the lame duck session. There certainly any any commission that wasn't granted, that wasn't actually given over, uh, that's it. We're we're." We're not going to hand it out to Marbury or these other guys. Done. Period. Done. So you have to understand this is part of a broader backdrop here. Broader backdrop. So they they appeal to the Supreme Court, um, directly to the Supreme Court, and this is a key point. You might ask, well, what happened to the district or appellate court? So they viewed – the um, for those of you who are unaware, Article Three, Section Two, so it grants the court original jurisdiction where the Supreme Court must deal with a case. For example, we just had Florida v. Georgia; they had a dispute over uh, a water source. 
So any dispute between two states or dispute over ambassadors involving certain government officials automatically goes to the Supreme Court. So they felt that the dispute over whether these commissions were actually effectuated before you know, the new administration or not, that that is something that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction on, not appellate jurisdiction. And therefore, uh, you know, they they um, they went to the Supreme Court. And it was brought by former Attorney General Charles Lee. And it, it, t- it took a while. I mean, this wasn't until later at the end of the year in, in 1801. It was a number of months that they that they did this. And he asked them to issue what's called a writ of mandanimous. <clears throat> so basically, a writ of <clears throat> mandamus is is a it, it's a judicial order that they could give a judicial order. You, James Madison, deliver the commission. You must do this. He he's entitled to it. And the Supreme Court granted standing and granted oral, you know, took it and, and granted oral arguments for some time in 1802. Jefferson was pissed because he was like, what the heck? Who, who are you to get involved in this? You know, the whole scheme to begin with, um, they, they loaded up the courts. They changed the judicial power. They did all sorts of things in this lame duck session. I'm the president now. What's going on here? Um, and also, it was very insidious because think about it. Mattis, Marshall was the guy who did this, and now he's swinging from the other fence in what's the ultimate, ultimate um, – conflict of interest that he should have recused himself. And, and and this is really where Marshall was a bastard and really should have – this is where everyone should agree he was wrong. He should have never heard the case. He should have recused himself. I mean, if there's ever a case for recusal, it's here. He was the guy who issued the stuff You know that they now want Madison to fulfill, and now he's the guy ruling on it. It's kind of, kind of unbelievable if you think about it. Um, You know – Maybe somewhat in the league of of uh, Kagan and and Ginsburg officiating gay gay marriages while ruling on it, but anyway. So here's another irony. Everyone focuses on, um, the case about Marbury, which is very in the weeds. Whether the commission was binding and effectuated for Marbury, the justice of the peace, before Jefferson took office. Yeah, very um. This is not exactly the future of immigration and marriage and abortion in America. You know what I mean? This is the case they're ruling on. But something much more important actually happened in the meantime. So they retaliated. Jefferson passed the Judiciary Act of 1802, which repealed the Judiciary Act of 1801 as a way of of um, getting back at Marshall because he was, he was ticked at him. And it passed Congress. And basically, it um it first so it made them ride circuit again because it kind of to punish them just like as a way like screw you, um and what what he did is he canceled the entire summer and winter sessions of the Supreme Court in 1802. He canceled it, and indeed, now you might think Marshall judicial supremacy you can't do that you can't limit the court's power what the heck struck it down we're gonna convene no he didn't do it he accepted that he accepted the judiciary act of 1802 and indeed they didn't convene until sometime in in february 1803 
So this case wasn't dealt with it, you know, it dragged on for a long time because of this. A lot of people forget this point, the backdrop of the Judiciary Act of 1802, which is much more important than Marbury, that that Congress has the full authority to pass a law and the president could sign the law completely controlling everything the court does. They could abolish an entire session of the Supreme Court, certainly abolish their entire appellate jurisdiction. Okay, but we're not done with the ironies. We're not done with the ironies here. Um, so anyway, okay, so it finally gets to the Supreme Court. What did he say? So again, they're asking – and by the way, Jefferson didn't even um, send anyone to represent Madison. So the attorney general at the time refused to even recognize it. Very important. I mean he, that's how badly he believed that they didn't have any jurisdiction on it. Now listen to this irony here. Here's the irony. So they wanted to say that the the you know Marbury wanted to say that a I am entitled to this commission. It was effectuated before and they're not giving it to me. B you have the power to issue a mandamus to 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 require Madison to 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 do it because who says you have that that power and see that you have original jurisdiction meaning that it doesn't first have to go through lower court lower courts and then you can only take it through appeal so ironically people forget about the main point of Marshall that Marshall said that <laughs> we don't have such power Okay, so now, for, first off, l l let me just back up to the main thing. So on the merits, he dispensed with the case. I mean, no, on the merits, um, Madison's right. So here, here's the irony. He actually ruled with Madison that he's right, that, that you know, if it wasn't handed off by the time Jefferson was th uh, sworn in, you, you don't get it. I mean, they, they could do what they want. Um, you're like someone from the previous administration. You can't force yourself upon the new, new administration. Done. So he actually ironically kept them out of – he actually the, – the, the, the merits of the ruling kept them out of ruling on this dispute. Now, the problem is that he went ahead in dicta and addressed something that he, sh he didn't need to address. And ironically but, – but, but here's the irony of all ironies in, in what he struck down, so to speak, which he didn't strike down. But what he ruled unconstitutional, he said, and even if – even if um, Madison was wrong, we don't have the original jurisdiction to rule on this because – so basically the, Section 13 of the 1789 Judiciary Act – expanded the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court that they could take original jurisdiction on on all cases, not just ambassadors, but cases dealing with these type of officers. And I actually agree with Marshall on this. He was like, no, you can't expect Congress. Th th think about what he's saying. He's striking down a law and, and, and striking down is a lazy term. He's not, but he's saying, I don't agree that this section of the law is constitutional. That grants more power to the Supreme Court. 
<laughs> think of it. This is kind of like what Clarence Thomas recently said, that even if even if Congress would explicitly grant district judges the power of nationwide injunctions, that that would probably be unconstitutional and they can't do it. So ironically, it's not like he was striking down um, a power of the other branches. He was striking down a power of the courts saying, no, their original jurisdiction is even more limited. And, and the ramification is that Congress could strip it away because they don't really have it to begin with. It, it could only be a part of the appellate jurisdiction. So we can only hear it through an appeal. Now, you, you could ask, why did he need to arrive to that? Was he trying to grow the power of the courts? Yeah, he was, and it was kind of insidious. But I actually agree with him on the underlying, um, certainly on the merits, and even on the dicta of what would have been had they had jurisdiction. I agree with him about Section 13. But but look at the irony of all these cases. It was an inside-the-weeds dispute that he ironically didn't want to get involved in, ironically striking down the power of Congress to grow the judiciary's power, in the same term upholding their power to strip them of an entire session. And you mean to tell me they're supreme? No, of course they're not supreme. It, it, it is unbelievable that this is not taught in law schools. Unbelievable. It's just it's just unreal. Now he did say that mandamus was the you know what was justified, meaning if they would have had let's say legitimate appeals, they could have issued that. And I, you know obviously the Jeffersonians didn't like that that you could you know get involved that much. Um, and yeah, he was expanding the power, but the notion that the courts couldn't fight, that the other branches couldn't fight back. Are you kidding me? Of course they could. Of course they could. Think about this. Think about this. This is why nobody ever cited Marbury. It was never a big deal until the Warren era. It was cited a couple times. I mean, it, it, it just, because it, on the underlying case, he was actually ruling with Madison, and he was actually limiting the power of the court at a time when broadly Congress was limiting the power of the courts, and he himself was upholding it. It's just it's it's so insane. There was nothing about that that anyone ever assumed that on immigration, election law, every decision under the sun that the court could just rule broadly speaking on on non individual plaintiffs. You know, this was a case that related directly to Marbury, my commission. Am I owed it or not? Okay, I'm going to give you standing, but it wasn't the proper way, and anyway, the commission wasn't owed to you here. But that they could abstract have that a ruling on marriage or abortion or immigration and then have that self-executing on every other party and then have that as the exclu exclusive and final say, that was an invention of the Warren era and, and Baker v. Carr and, and, and uh, Cooper v. Aaron um, and, and uh, all the subsequent cases thereafter, McCormick. This is the truth about Marbury. This is why Ed Meese confidently said that, that – um, Marshall and his disciple, Joseph's story, would, would not recognize what's going on today. Now, yeah, Jefferson, for his view, didn't like even that degree of power because I think his view is, you're right, we all have an equal role in interpreting the Constitution, but you're not elected. So you are manifestly the weakest branch, so you should always defer, even in that case or controversy.
He didn't like it. Now, we're running out of time, but there's six or seven points, small points I want to make to, again, prove the illogical illegality and absurdity of judicial supremacy. So jurisdiction stripping. As you well know, it's not only the fact that Congress could strip the jurisdiction of the lower courts, abolish them, and strip the entire appellate jurisdiction, which is 99% of what the Supreme Court does, strip their ability to meet, force them to meet in some swamp, force them to stand on their head, uh, create three justices, um, you know, two justices, maybe possibly just one guy called the Supreme um you know, Chief Justice of the United States, and that's it. Force them to circuit ride. It's that they don't, they only have such jurisdiction as Congress grants them. So it's not like, okay, the default is they have it, but Congress could strip it. It's that they don't even have it unless Congress affirmatively grants it to them. Marshall himself said this a number of times. I've quoted this before. But the irony is that's the lesson of Marbury versus Madison. That, that, that the courts only have the power that Congress grants them on appellate jurisdiction and downright the power that only the Constitution grants them on, on the original jurisdiction. And Congress can't even grow that. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what these clowns learn in law school. Exact opposite. You know, and, and uh, like I said, I mean, John Marshall said that. I mean, that, that, that without a signal from Congress, you know, they, they wouldn't have this jurisdiction. Trying to remember where, where the case is, um, where this, this case was that I'm talking about John Marshall. I'll try to remember it and, 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 and cite it if I can't find it here. But um, oh, here it is. So it was uh, it was an 1810 case. Trying to find where where it is, but here's the quote: um, When the first legislature of the union proceeded to carry the third article of the Constitution to effect, this is the 1789 Judiciary Act. It must be understood understood as intending to execute the power they possessed of making exceptions to the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. It has not indeed made these exceptions in express terms. It has not declared that the appellate power of the court shall not extend to certain cases, but it has described affirmatively its jurisdiction, and this affirmative description has been understood to imply a negative on the exercise of such appellate power as is not comprehended within it. And indeed, in 1893, um, in Colorado uh, mining uh, v. Turk, okay, uh, forget the name of the case, uh, landmark 1893 case, the court said, quote, it has been held in an uninterrupted series of decisions that this court exercises appellate jurisdiction only in accordance with the acts of Congress upon that subject. This is our heritage. This is our history. This is our constitution. Everyone else who tells you something else is wrong, 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 wrong. This is the biggest constitutional crisis we have. But anyway, my point is, Think about, think about what doesn't make sense. So on the one hand, if they have the jurisdiction, they're supreme even over Congress. But then Congress could take it away? This is a philosophical proof. The fact that you have the exceptions and regulations provision of Article 2, Section 2, 
is proof that they can't be supreme even when you don't strip their jurisdiction. Because it makes no sense if they intended them to be the final arbiter like this council of revision that was never created, but really even more, a super council of revision. So then they intended them to be that arbiter. How, how could you say Congress could take away their jurisdiction? You know, like, like, like Clarence Thomas said in a, in a recent case, this term actually, that the power, I mean, it's not a direct quote I don't have in front of me, but the power of Congress to, to you know, narrow, define the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is, is the same power they have to coin money or declare war, um, create weights and measurements, you know? Anything else in the enumerated powers of Article 1, Section 8? So that's one proof. Another, another point. The fact that courts need a valid avenue on the front end to get the case. Think about it. Think about it. If, if, if they meant the courts to be a council of revision, so then just take any law and go to them for the constitutionality. What is this game that you could somehow find some uh, parsimonious way to get a case into the court? Oh, and once they rule on that... On that individual, oh, there you go. Now it's in the courts. It's a self-executing, universally binding. Oh, that's the law of the land. The 14th Amendment is like this. Marriage is like this. No, it makes no sense. Because if they intended them to have such crazy power, why would they create such a back-ended way? What? So if somehow lawyers are skilled in getting it in, the law is upheld. But if they're not, if they're not skilled, but if they are skilled, then it gets struck down. That it's, 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 it's a false dichotomy. That's not how it works. It's they have the power to adjudicate legitimate cases and controversies. They could issue a judgment for that plaintiff if they feel that the law gets in their way, but that it would be universally binding and overruling everyone else and no one else could fight back is absurd. Number three, why do you think they gave them no enforcement mechanism? <laughs> no power of the purse. You know, they understood that you would need the other branches, and if the other branches would disagree with it, they're not going to treat it as binding precedent. That's what Abraham Lincoln said. And this is what I wrote in, in today's article that, you know, from Judge William Pryor on the currently sitting on the 11th Circuit. This was his point, that when Hamilton said that judges exercise neither force nor will, but merely judgment, quote, Hamilton's point was that we must depend upon the persuasiveness of our written opinions to command the respect of our fellow citizens. In that way, we have the foremost responsibility of safeguarding our independence. We have to have good opinions. If you write crap, we're not bound by it. it the, the courts are one of the ways of checking an unconstitutional statute. But it's not the final and exclusive say. It's one of the ways that, you know, uh, if it's a legitimate right and a legitimate standing and a personalized grievance, which doesn't apply to many of these cases, like challenging a World War I cross, you know, memorial where there's no, there should be no standing on that. Forget about the merits. Um, <clears throat> because, again, the courts don't rule on that. They don't have that power. But there's no enforcement. Because they understood that they're unelected. So they figured let if you write a good opinion, people will say like, wow, you know, you're right. I, I really think this is unconstitutional. And as other branches of government, we're going to respect that in other, other similar cases. We're going to treat that as the law. Not because the courts are the law, because you're right that, the, that that's what the Constitution means. And the Constitution is the law. 
That's why they gave them no force. And this is what I quoted today in the last paragraph of Scalia's dissent in Obergefell. That paragraph is what prompted me, for those of you who don't know, inspired me to write my book, that I felt he was asking us to do this. He said, you don't understand. The courts are out of control. The other branches need to fight back. He was calling on this. He would never imagine – one of the things – I mean I, as much as I love Thomas and he's been awesome on these immigration cases, I think Scalia in some way, he would have been – I would have loved to see his writings on, on the travel ban. He would have never understood that the executive branch would follow the court say, catch and release. You must take any invader in this country and release them into our country. That a forum shop district judge when we know other judges would not say that, that somehow that controls nationwide our, our border – policy no and and again this is the leads to my fourth point which is that certainly a court can't place a positive on the negative of another another branch there's one thing they give a judgment to a plaintiff you can't be executed you can't be fined you can't be imprisoned but to say you're entitled to a gay marriage license you're entitled to a visa no, you don't have the power. You can't force another branch to unconstitutionally um, cough that up. And indeed, pursuant to Marbury, they have the obligation, indeed the responsibility, they must, mustn't, must not issue that visa in, con- in contravention to law and the Constitution. Point number five, even the Council of Revision, I, I made this point before, that was not adopted, but the Council of Revision was a the president together with some Supreme Court justices, so it's not just unelected. The people are voting for that, and B, it was in lieu of the presidential veto. So a law passes Congress, and then rather than a presidential veto, you had this. But now we have a presidential veto. That is a check on Congress. The notion that the House could pass something representing the people, the Senate could pass something representing the states, ideally, before the 17th Amendment, and the president could then sign it. And then a court, and only a court, with no elected representation, has the exclusive final role in just vetoing that or legislating something through a veto, through the leverage of a judicial veto – you know, only this would be upheld type of thing It is so foreign to our founders that the courts could have that power. They never would have even thought of concocting a council of revision like that. And they certainly didn't adopt a council of revision. But again, that was the second that was the first line of defense against the legislature. Now we have the presidential veto. Next point. Next point. Part of what has simultaneously grown the power of the court is the simultaneous bastardization of the actual interpretation of the Constitution by the judiciary. What do I mean by that? Part of the problem we have now is that, um, so, you know, our founders in judicial review, they never understood. Even even judicial review, forget about judicial supremacy, but even the opportunity for courts to at least for a specific case or controversy say this statute, state or federal, is unconstitutional was so limited. 
It was only, it was literally, I mean, you look what Hamilton and Marshall used. Bill of Attainder ex post facto. I say anyone named John Smith must pay an extra 10% taxes. It was so clear that it was only in that case. It wasn't something that was murky that, that you defer to the courts on. Even in that case or controversy, they never would have envisioned that. You know, um, <clears throat> Roger Sherman said this. James Wilson said this. Um, only when it was repugnant to the plain meaning of the Constitution. And, and, and in fact, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember if it was Wilson who said this. Um, it might have been Wilson. I think it was Wilson, not the um, 1860s uh, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the founder, James Wilson, uh, one of the most extraordinary founders. He said that, you know, you would actually be able to have a case that, you know, a law that is pretty tyrannical, but it still is not so repugnant to the Constitution as to be unconstitutional. You know, that, that, that was very clear from him. <clears throat> and again, even Matt and even um, Marshall also said some cases, used the word some. It wasn't meant to be everything, it was very unique circumstances. You know that that was that was the um that was the the reality. And, and and Marshall also by the way he said that all branches he said it very clearly all departments have the right to interpret the constitution but you know again the understanding was some Jeffersonians felt that you know downright the courts even for their limited capacity with no power to enforce it still shouldn't have that power just because they're they're unelected Marshall disagreed most of the founders disagreed with that especially the federalists but still they never intended for this to happen so getting back to my point I want to make here it was rare that you'd get standing for this a, they never envisioned the ACLU and the NAACP that have gained out 60 years of precedent in getting standing to now get standing to put anything into a court. But B, and here's the critical thing, they, um, they figured the state courts would deal with almost all of this because by definition, none of them felt that a horse and a donkey marriage was in the Constitution. That a right to immigrate was in the Constitution. That a right to early voting was in the Constitution. That a right to vote without photo ID was in the Constitution. <clears throat> but because they've established, broadly speaking, that these cases are in the Constitution, they've already, and even most conservative justices, which is why I don't believe that this much is going to change, have agreed to this, that fundamentally they're on some level in the Constitution. So if they're in the Constitution, that creates a federal question. So automatically it gets put into a federal court, and automatically they have an opportunity to engage in judicial review, which in their view is now judicial supremacy. But our founders never envisioned judicial review to really come up that much because most of this would be state courts doing it, not federal courts, because they're not they're not going to implicate federal questions because most legislatures really didn't pass things that were manifestly repugnant to the Constitution as written. See what I'm saying? It's not just the fact that they bastardized the Constitution. It's that by doing so, they've made everything a federal question that even if they don't ultimately rule in their way, they certainly could get standing to get it into the courts and start growing it. 
So that, you know, that's that. And then, and then finally, another point. A lot of people ask me, okay, Daniel, well, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. We don't want majoritarian rule. I understand you don't want, you know, judicial supremacy, but, but what's this not legislative supremacy? So right off the bat, just understand what it takes to get something passed. You know, you know, I, I, I marvel, I marvel at how, you know, and and um, Randy Barnett, who wrote wrote the book Republican Constitution, you know, which is almost the opposite of my book. It, it starts with almost the same premise, but then veers in an opposite direction. I agree, we're a republic, not a, a democracy. But the problem is, he defines a republic as basically judicial supremacy. The judi- it's the judiciary's job to decide everything, and that is that's not a republic. That's that's tyranny worse than than King George. That nine people, really five out of nine, could set national policy for everything. At least here, you have a hundred senators. You have five hundred thirty-five members. It's so ha- much harder. It's bicameral. It's divided into two. Especially before the Seventeenth Amendment, one was designed to represent the people. One was designed to represent the states. So even with the legislature, a it's much bigger. More it takes more people to get consensus majority, and b it's it, it in itself is divided bicamerally. But then people are forgetting you have the executive branch's check of the veto. You have that. But then it goes further than that. Who ultimately decides? It's we the people. It's all of us. It's all the people. It's the 50 states. It's the media. It's the institutions. Yes, and it's the judiciary for their role if they want to. But it's certainly the executive and legislative branches as well. Madison dealt with this. And I, I linked to this in my article today. Madison dealt with this in his um, a le- letter he wrote almost at the end of his life in 1834. Uh, I don't know if it's been verified who wrote this. Um, but where is this? No, actually, I'm wrong. This was a different quote from him. Um, where is this trying to find here? Um, that was a different letter, the one I linked to, but, um, you know, that's the one where he said each department must, must in the exercise of its functions be guided by the text of the constitution, according to its own interpretation of it. Now, again, he didn't like where he thought, Marshall was headed with it. And I think they predicted and 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 downright in that letter he actually said it but he predicted what would happen. It's very easy to understand because see there's a concept of of, of res judicata, of finality in law to a case or controversy. In an individual case, special, you know, criminal civil case, you have finality, finality of judgment. So the problem that they were concerned about is that when you mix judicial review with res judicata, it will easily in the imbue in the body politic and the consciousness of the culture and the, certainly the political culture and the legal culture. This notion that that's settled, you know, you have a dramatic case and oh, they decide like this. But it it it, it certainly doesn't have to be that way, and the rationale of Marbury doesn't dictate that and dictates the opposite. But Madison was concerned about that, but certainly he he believed the opposite. But in a letter from James Madison to Spencer. Rowan in May 6, 1821. So this was a little bit earlier in his life. 
towards the end of his life, after his presidency, retired. And he actually dealt with this question. So who decides? Who is the arbiter? Who is the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution? Very interesting question. Um, you know, he wanted to know who would ultimately decide this. And, 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 and this was a judge he wrote to. And, you know, he wrote about his concerns with uh, judicial supremacy. And I'm going to link to this in show notes. My computer's just being slow here and trying to, to ring this up. Couldn't get this out before. Man, where is this? So annoying. Um, but basically, you know, he said, obviously the judiciary everyone would know would be a part of it. The judiciary could render in their cases a certain thing. But is that going to be the final law of the land? No, of course not. It's everyone together. Now you might say, well, but then who's going to check the legislature? You know, Because if you understand Madison's writing, again, it's so funny because – you know, so many of the founders were concerned that the president would be a king. It's amazing that that they, the founders would envision a time where the United States president would say, it's not my power to go to war unilaterally, basically, now. We lost another soldier in Afghanistan for God knows what. May God rest his soul. Very, very sad. Corporal Joseph Mikhail of California. He died in an insider attack. That, that's our working with the Afghani military, by the way. War, veto. No, that, that, that's not, I mean, and, and that's what bothers me because the president needs to recognize the veto power. Um, we, we did a whole show on that. We have a lot of articles on that. But that they, they thought the president would be a king, but that he would be subordinate to the courts and his only power was in who he would appoint? Are you kidding me? Again, that's the irony. The case through which Marbury was born out of, the backdrop of that was John Jay turning down John Adams' request. It was like, screw it. I don't want it. But anyway, who ultimately decides? You know, because Madison was concerned, he said that the legislature would necessarily predominate. In a Republican government. Everyone knew. We have three separate but equal branches in a certain way, in certain spheres. But it was very clear in his mind, it was the legislature one, president two, and courts three. In that order, and not surprisingly, that is the order of um, the Constitution. And not surprisingly, Article 3 garnered the least debate. Because it wasn't a council of revision. It wasn't what was made out in Cooper v. Aaron. Because if it was, that would have consumed the entirety of the debate. Because everything that they were concerned about with the president, which took up most of the debate, and the formulation of Congress, that would have been doubly true with the judiciary. Many of them were worried about the president being a king. Madison was most worried about the legislature. And he said, what do you, what do, you do if they... Um, you know, what is to control, quote, what is to control Congress when backed and even pushed on by a majority of their constituents? Right? I mean, you have a majority of people that want a nanny state government. 
right, that want a nanny state government? What is to push them? You know, Congress says you must purchase health insurance from the insurance cartel. Now, that's obviously unconstitutional, especially at a federal level. Well, Daniel, don't you want, you know, the courts? In that case, don't you want the court? Well, no, (laughs) it's not because the court, I want the courts. I mean, I want everyone to uphold the Constitution. The courts are one of the ways. But what did he say? He said, nothing within the pale of the Constitution but sound argument and conciliatory expostulations address both the Congress and and their constituents. You got to convince the people. It's elections. It's everything. It's the presidential election. It's congressional election. And yes, the courts. It's one of the ways, co-equal, that if it's a valid thing, look, you're forcing me to purchase something I don't want. You're forcing me to engage in commerce. That's the ultimate individualized grievance. I have the right to go to court. And I agree that if I'm a judge, I would issue, I would say, look, you get relief. But ultimately, it's it's a sound argument. It's appealing to the people. One of the ways is judges writing good arguments like William Pryor said. And people will get convinced that. But ultimately, you have to convince the whole of the people. The courts are one facet of that. They don't control it. And they're really, really the weakest in effectuating that. But again, I'm certainly not for majoritarian rule, which is why we don't have a parliamentarian system in this country. People forget the checks are already built in. But I would submit that I would rather have that, which we don't have, than judicial supremacy, because that's the worst. There's nothing you can do about that. And I, I know we've. this is probably the longest podcast ever, and I got to get back to work, but I would submit as, as we wait, you know, for, for Trump to, to render his, you know, his pick, just remember this. All of this is unconstitutional. All of this, all of this is something that, that our founders never envisioned. And I think there is an opportunity the fact that the left wrongly fears that they're going to lose the court, I think they won't. And and, and especially, I mean, you know, even if um, even if Barrett is picked, but I think certainly the other ones, it's not going to change much. You know, because ironically, the left and the liberal lower court judges actually treat Marbury the way. I'm suggesting the right should, but the right doesn't do it. In other words, when they basically take a Supreme Court ruling and they basically limit to those cases and controversies. Now you might say, well, Daniel, you know, haven't you spoken out against that? I've only spoken out against that because of the system we have. Um, I have no problem if lower court judges then will ignore the other precedents too. But it has to work both ways. The problem is we only do it one way. When we win cases, Supreme Court, the lower courts basically limit them to that case and basically disregard the precedent. Whereas um, in our cases, even the best of judges, if they're lower court judges, I mean, you hear it emphatically. Uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, all of them said, you know, when they were nominated to lower courts, look, you know, certainly as a lower court justice, we are bound by Roe v. Wade, Obergefell, whatever else. Um, you know, so that's this imbalance, which is why I feel we're never going to win back the courts. There's no question about it. Um, but, 
you know, it, it is kind of funny. The left has shown an example. You know, if they want to go, this is my grand bargain I write about today. If they want to go ahead and say, look, Janice, okay, you gave your ruling to that guy, but for everyone else, we are going to go together and that's it. We are, we are going to push back. We're going to create new state laws, maybe tweak them a little bit, a little different, but trying to, you know, empower the unions. Now, I disagree with that because I believe the Constitution says they're wrong, not because the court said they're wrong. But that's one of the things. Alito wrote a good opinion. You see what I'm saying? It's not a, it's too, too polarizing. Well, do the courts have the power to do judicial review or not? I hope that after this discussion, I have cleared up some of this. Um, You're not going to hear this elsewhere. But we need to understand this foundation. Otherwise, nothing else matters. And again, for all the other reasons I've said, we're never going to win this judicial supremacy game. We may as well use the Democrat angst and their fear of conservatives using it, which won't really happen much anyway, um, and say, all right, let's make a deal. You want to be able to not regard Janice as supreme? And Citizens United, fine. We're not. We're going to regard any of your stuff supreme. And let's let's fight back. Let let's fight back through the whole body of the people and all the branches of government, and all the states, and we'll see who wins politically. But that's that's ultimately what needs to happen. Um, again, in a perfect world, everyone would follow the Constitution. But you know, when you have people believing the Constitution is 180 degrees the opposite of what it is, we certainly can't have that being placed in in those hands. So. Let's wait and see what happens. Let me know your feedback on this episode. dharwitz at crtv.com, at rmconservative on Twitter. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.